Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Kelly Richardson Lawson. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Waymaker Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Kelly Richardson Lawson is the founder of the Sunrise Project, an organization that provides hope to families and individuals struggling with mental health issues. Today, we'll talk about the foundation of the organization, the destigmatization of mental health issues, and much more. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker. And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, I have the privilege to talk to my friend, Kelly Richardson Lawson, about the Sunrise Project that she is founder of, and she calls it a safe place for Black people. Welcome, Kelly. Hey, Lewis. Thank you for having me this morning. Thank you. So, you know, Kelly, I've been wanting to talk to you about the Sunrise Project. Can you tell our audience what it is exactly? The Sunrise Project is a safe space for Black people to come, to share, to be vulnerable. It is a safe space to help one another heal from our pain, from our trauma. And it's a safe space for Black parents and caregivers who may be dealing with children that may have mental wellness and or addiction challenges. Um, And we get together once a week and we share, we open up. We bring experts, and it is a place to congregate in a very safe space filled with love and hope and a desire to heal ourselves and heal our families. Why did you start the Sunrise Project, Kelly? What what was going on or what were your interests in order to start this uh, organization? I started the Sunrise Project with my husband. because my family was going through a quite challenging time with our eldest son, Kyle. And at that time, he was a new uh, freshman in high school and started to change things that we thought he loved in the past, he stopped liking. His grades, he went from a 4.0 GPA, straight A student to, um, you know, failing all his classes. And we didn't really see the signs of depression, anxiety, any of those things. And so we went through a challenging period of us trying to change him, us trying to make him be someone that he wasn't. And during that experience and all of the trauma that was happening in our house, which you can imagine, it's like pushing somebody to do something they really don't want to do. They pull, the more you push, the more they pull, the more you push, the more they pull. Ultimately, uh, we ended up in a space where we were in the hospital one night and he had tried to end his life. And we were both so dumbfounded, shocked, didn't see it coming, didn't really take time to see what was happening. And in that moment of darkness, I remember feeling very alone and very afraid for my child and not knowing what to do or where to turn. And I realized that there was not a place to go and to talk and to open up and to share and to learn. And I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt like I had done something wrong. 
you know, I must be a bad mom, must be a bad parent. There was all of this shame and um, guilt also with my child trying to end his life. And so the Sunrise Project was born out of that need to help one another, learn how to cope, learn how to uh, deal with trauma and traumatic situations, and ultimately learn to be better parents. Because at the end of the day, there was really nothing wrong with our child. He just wanted to be a child. He wanted to experience things as a teenager. And we focused on him being this perfect, um, you know, we focused on trying to force him into a space that he didn't want to be in. And so the Sunrise Project was born in a very dark place, um, but it's such a beautiful space and such a beautiful place for parents and caregivers and just people, Black people, to get together and learn how to heal. Why did you name it Sunrise? I mean, you could have picked any names. You're a marketing executive. So tell us the, the meaning and the importance of Sunrise. Sunrise has so many meetings. Um, it's spelled sun, S-O-N. So I have two sons. Um, I'm also a very deep believer in, in God and in faith. And I think about the ultimate son in Jesus. I also know that no matter how dark times get, the sun always rises. And so the spirit and the intention of sunrise is to say, even in our darkest hours, even in our most painful spaces, if we can hold on um, and we can share love with one another, the sun always rises and there's always a new day. There's always a new opportunity for possibility. Had you ever focused on mental health before your son and these escapades of, uh, I guess you want to say, difference or misbehaving? Had you ever thought about mental illness before then? So mental illness um, has such a stigma in the Black community. Um, my grandmother, I always knew something wasn't quite right, but no one talked about it. I have a cousin who I haven't seen in over 30 years, no one talks about it. I see signs of, um, I know that they're family members, immediate family members that have bipolar um, disorder, no one talks about it. And so in my family, like many black families, I knew something wasn't quite right, but it was not a discussion. It was not a conversation. So I did not start working with my own mental health until I was an adult. And so I realized, you know, I really, it would help me to go talk to somebody, to get out my frustrations, to be able to be in a place where somebody can actually help me with what I'm dealing with. But I wasn't, that wasn't until I was 26, 27 years old. And I had um, gone through a really pretty crazy divorce in my twenties and needed to work through that. And so yeah, so no is the answer because our our community has so much stigma still. So, so, so Kelly, and you may know the answer to this, and you may not. Mm -hmm. Is a mental and emotional health a lot like cardiovascular disease, diabetes? So, if your mom got it, your grandma got it, uh, you need to be concerned that it could be genetic or not. Absolutely. So 
I would say I would change the word concern because I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily have a concern, but yes, it is genetic and there are um, tracers. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know all the medical language, but yes, if you have a tendency to have bipolar or depression or anxiety in your family, it is in your blood, it's in your genes. And so, yes, um, it's something to look for. It's something to be cognizant of. It's nothing to be ashamed about. I have ADD. I'm very clear I have ADD. And so I have medicine. When I take it, I do well. I'm able to focus. When I don't, I can see the difference, but there's no shame in that anymore. Uh, but yes, if your family members, if you, if, um, if you have it in your family, it typically trickles down to you. And what we know for sure, Lewis, as you know, is we've had 400 plus years of trauma in our community. And so that trauma just continues and continues and we really haven't dealt with it as a society like we need to. So Kelly, when you think about it and you talk about it in our communities, you know, we, we never until recently heard people talk about mental health in, in black communities. It's just right. wasn't a thing. Uh, has mental health issues increased or they were always there and we did not recognize, diagnose them uh, before? Because it just seems like it's a hot topic today and you know more focus on it than ever before. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well... Mental health has always been here. Mental health challenges have always been there, but there's some data that shows that in the black community, 63% of black people believe that a mental health condition is a sign of personal weakness. And so if 63% of our families are saying, boy, isn't nothing wrong with you? You good, like get yourself together. Cause they view that as personal weakness then we tend to hide it. We tend to not talk about it. That's part of who Black people are, our community. So it's always been there. We're just now starting to say we need to deal with it. And we need to deal with it because of the alarming rates and the increase in the incidence of suicide and depression and anxiety. The rates are skyrocketing. There's recent data that just came out showing the data. Um, and we know that our young people are half as likely as their white counterparts to say that they need help or to ask for help. So Kelly, talk about the Sunrise Project. What does it exactly do? What type of access does it give people and, and how does it work? I know you have your sort of weekly podcast, but so give us a description of the Sunrise Project and all of the resources. The Sunrise Project really is at its core, a safe space for Black people to come together every week. So we have had uh, weekly calls for over three years. We just celebrated our third anniversary, but it's a safe space where an expert joins a conversation. We have a weekly topic and parents, caregivers, anyone can join and participate in the conversation, listen, um, ask questions. We often have a therapist or a doctor to deal with real situations that are happening in real time. But the core of our program is a weekly call 
used to be at sunrise, but most people don't wake up as early as I do. So at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we have a weekly call and it's a topic of a week of the week based on what our village and our listeners want to talk about. That's the core of what we do. We also, from time to time, will have sessions with young people, young men. We're launching mm -hmm. something called Survivor Stories, um, which will feature young people interviewing um, more seasoned people like ourselves. And so uh, there's a core, there's multiple pieces, but the core is an opportunity for people who may feel alone, may feel like they don't know where to go. They don't know who to talk to. They can come to a safe space and they can open up and share in this environment. So, so Kelly, if, if, if you don't mind, what are some of the signs that existed that you just missed? Because there may be parents listening. And I think you may be able to give them some guidance, some help. So, so what are some of the signs that you just said, hey, in looking through the rearview mirror now, you could say it was there and I just missed it. Right. The biggest sign I would say is there are a couple things. One, if they lose interest in things that they used to love doing, just the loss of interest. Two, if they're in their room all the time, you know, there's this thing called silent and solo. So they go off by themselves all the time. It's dark in the room. They never want to come out. They're always by themselves, whereas they used to have friends, friend group. All of a sudden they go off and they become silent and solo. Even small things like putting the AirPods in, never taking them out, ever. That is a sign. You know, if they're not ever willing to talk. Um, and I think the biggest challenge we have, particularly as Black parents, is we don't learn to just listen really just to listen to our kids because we have these preconceived notions of what they should be and what they should be doing. We just listen and let them talk. So my mistake was, our mistake was, we didn't listen to Kyle. Now he was like, I don't want to swim anymore. I'm tired of swimming. Okay. We just said, okay, cool. He wanted to play basketball. He was a great basketball player, but we pretty much forced him to stay down this path that we had designed for him. That was a mistake. I'd say, don't do that. If your child says, I don't want to do this anymore, say, okay, <laughs> let's do something else. But most important, I'd say, when you see the signs, the grades changing, silent and solo, off by themselves, never wanting to do anything, maybe not even wanting to take a shower, the hygiene changes, you know, going from wanting to smell great all the time for the girls to, I'm speaking for, you know, boys or whoever, but the point is the hygiene, all of it was changing right before our eyes. And we just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. So, so I'd say Kelly, how did you and your husband learn to, I guess the term I would use, evolve as yeah. parents? Because uh, yeah. parents are parents, all right? right. How, how did you learn to evolve as a parent and try different things. Right. So it's been a three-year journey of transformation, major transformation. Um, and that transformation is mostly because of the Sunrise Project and because of the countless experts that have called in. Um, they don't charge. These are people that want to help. But the transformation started with me knowing that... Um, 
one, I'm doing the best I can. But and two, I want to learn. I'm open to learning and I'm open to changing who I am in order to be a better person. And that's true with parenting or in life. So what I learned most importantly is to accept, um, really accept the person that's in front of me and their beautiful mind is exactly who God intended them to be. Acceptance is most important. I think allowing them to be who they are, even if if it may not be who we think they should be, that has been major. And I think most importantly, it's having faith over fear. Because for our Black sons, they walk out the door every day. We just want them to come back home. And so many of us parent out of fear. That's what I did. I don't parent out of fear anymore. I parent out of faith that he's going to be fine. And Chris is going to be fine. And God's got them. That's the biggest piece. Because when we hold on so tight, we hold those reins on, they want to break free. Now, Now, here's a difficult question, Kelly. And I know a lot of parents are going to be interested in this this answer. Mm -hmm. What do you do when they're doing things that could possibly hurt them? Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's drugs or whatever case. And what do you do when they're doing things that impact other members of the family? How do you sort of maneuver through that space? Right. So. That's what we were dealing with. I think um, during those three years I talked about, or really four years, I think if I could get the time back, I would have focused on conversation and communication around why the behaviors were happening, not punishing for the behavior, but really understanding why are you, like, what's going on? I would have worked on conversation Um, I would have worked on the relationship because how do you go through it is I think successfully is to have that relationship and to make sure that they know that you love them no matter what, and that you're there no matter what versus being so punishing, because I don't know that we would have had so much drama had we had that core foundational relationship. And ultimately, if they're doing something that harms themselves or potentially could harm themselves, you have to take steps and help them get treatment. Mm -hmm. And so they need to have some therapeutic treatment. There's all kinds of places. There's one-on-one treatment, there's therapeutic facilities, there's outpatient types places, um, there's wilderness programs, which I would not recommend. We did that too. Um, But I think ultimately the relationship, focusing on the relationship versus being right. That is the key. So I'm sure this put uh, a strain on you and your husband. How did you work through that uh, as as a couple? So now we talked about the family, Mm -hmm. but how did you work through that as a couple? Hmm. We are still working through it, Lewis. (laughs) Really honest. You know, I think we really support each other. And there's no blame. There's no shame. We, um, we're in this together and we talk way more now than we've ever have in the past. We communicate with each other way more than we ever used to. You know, we used to be calendar keepers. You know, you're going to take this one there. You're going to do that. Now we actually talk 
about what's going on and we communicate and the boys know that we're a team. They don't come do what, you know, what they used to do. Mom, can I do this? And I'll say, let me talk to dad first. I'll get back to you. It's a diff very different approach um, than it used to be. But it's been hard. There's been some moments that have been hard. But ultimately, we support each other and um, the boys know we love them more than anything. So, so Kelly, why, and, and maybe you have the facts and the numbers, that when it comes to mental health, it seems more like, especially in our community, a black male issue versus 50-50 black female, black male. Is, 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 is that how it, the numbers actually come out? That it's more focused on black males than black females? Well, we do know that um, the rates are spiking. We do know that Black men are more affected right now in the most recent information than any other group. Um, there are organizations focused specifically on helping Black men. And yes, the numbers are spiking for Black men. Um, and they, it is the highest group in terms of incidents, depression, anxiety, and actually suicide. Um, right now. And so why is that? I think um, I think that all of the trauma that Black men face, you know better than me, you know, what you have to deal with on a daily basis. If you're suppressing that constantly rather than addressing it, it ultimately will take its toll. Uh, we did a study on 2,000 men looking at Black male bias, 1,000 white men, 1,000 Black men. And one of the pieces of the studies looked at how do you describe yourself? And Black men and white men describe themselves exactly the same. Smart, confident, funny, kind, nice person, you know, these things. When you ask white men how they describe Black men, that's when it changes. Black men, white men describe Black men as athletic, competitive, strong, tiny bit funny but you don't see smart anywhere in the conversation. Not one word around smart, intelligent. And so over time, that actually we saw the study, over time that tends to affect a black person, their own self-confidence, how they start to view themselves. And if you're in a PWI, often you start moving into what these people Tell think our audience what, what a PWI is. I oh, know, but predominantly I white institution. Predominantly white institution. So in my instance, we live in a predominantly white institution neighborhood. And so what can happen is, what we saw in the data is, because of this difference in perception, Black men over time, from high school to college, their self-perception declined. And imagine then, if you're not dealing with that and you don't have a village of other black folks telling you, you're amazing, you're brilliant, you're smart. You don't have that. And instead you have something very opposite than that. You can, it starts to really weigh on your mental health. And so there is all kinds of data out there to support that. And yes, black men need more support right now. And, and Kelly, having gone through this experience with your son, mm -hmm. can you talk to young black boys and men who may be on this journey 
mm-hmm. and just don't have the confidence, the assurance, or love. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to those men who are out there on this journey? Because mm-hmm. life is this journey, all right? It so journey. where you are two days ago may not be where you are next, going to be next week. So I call it a journey. So can you speak to those young men having dealt with this? Can you give them some type of sort of encouragement? Yes. I would say for Black men out there, I can only imagine what you deal with on a regular basis. I have two sons, but I'm not a Black man, obviously. Um, Jay-Z on his 444 album has a really incredible line that says, you don't heal till you reveal. And I would say most importantly for for you, know that you are incredible, know that you're a king, know that you're special, you're brilliant, you're amazing. And yet also know that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, hey, I'm not feeling quite right. It's okay to reveal how you're really feeling so that you actually can heal. And uh, I think being okay with being vulnerable, being okay to cry, knowing that it's okay to show your emotions, that is how we're going to heal ourselves as Black men and our overarching community. Thank you for that, Kelly. How can the Sunrise Project help those men? How can, what resources and access do you give that may help them? I know you talked about parents, but those who may be sort of emotionally and mentally on their own. Right. Well, this year we're launching actually a program for young men where we will have young men and celebrities speaking on calls, similar to our sunrise calls. They will be live calls once a week. And those will be conversations that are safe. You come into a space, you have to have a password, but you can come into a space and open up and have a conversation. So those are happening later this year. Right now, we do have web uh, resources on our website with a bunch of brothers who work with young men, Dr. Rick Wallace, uh, Dr. Walid Ali, um, the doc and the dude. There's all kinds of information on our site about those programs, Black Men Lead, Black Men Heal, all kinds of work there. But I'm excited about what we're going to be doing together, even with you, Lewis and Waymaker, as we expand our work together this year. Kelly, is the healthcare system adequate now to address no. uh, these issues? I couldn't even wait till, till your question was finished. Our healthcare situation is... is um, devastating. Only 5% of Black doctors in this country, of doctors are Black. And it's even less in the mental health space. Only 4% of doctors who are psychiatrists are Black. And so when you're looking for a doctor, especially in the uh, to have a therapist, you want someone that looks like you. And we don't have them out there in, in big waves. So we need to do work to get people in this field and to be interested in the field to help help us. And the and we need better training. We need people who um, might be in crisis. We had some crises where it was a little crazy in my house. And I was afraid to call the police because I didn't. I know they're not trained in this space the way they should be. And so when you know we've had moments where there've been 
you know, um, like a psychotic episode, I don't call the police because I know they're not trained. And many times our medical professionals, especially in certain neighborhoods, are not trained properly to deal with our boys. And so we're left there in this um, conundrum. But no, the medical situation is is problematic right now. Our we have a lot of work to do. So Kelly, we here at Waymaker, we're always asking successful people, you know, who has been your Waymaker. So I'm going to ask the specific question to you: Who was the personal persons that opened your eyes? that help you evolve and help your family move through this and still mm -hmm. help and encourage you? Who was that one person or persons that sort of helped you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so many, so that's why I'm struggling with the one. Uh, name them all. <laughs> Um, I would say if I think about the therapist that's been my rock when I've called and cried and said, help, I don't know what to do. Dr. Linda McGee, she was, um, she's one of the producers on a film called I'm Good Bro, which is incredible. She's known my family since the babies were born. Her name is Dr. Linda McGee. She's amazing and a way maker and is there when I need her always to pick me up off the ground. Um, Sylvia High, an incredible um, leader, coach. She's been my personal coach for many, many years. Um, she has helped me learn not to compare myself to anybody else. We know comparison is a cheat of joy. I don't compare myself. I'm so good with who I am. Good or bad, she's helped. I'd say, Lewis, you've helped. You've been such a mentor and a mentor for me, a mentor for Kyle an anchor in my life for what, 30 years? I don't know, a long time. And so over the years, you've shared so much wisdom, whether it was in meetings that you were leading, you didn't even know you were affecting me, whether it was, hey, where's Kyle? Bring him up here so I can talk to him. That's, I mean, um, amazing. And I so appreciate that. And you've been a mentor for my whole family. Um, so I'd say Sylvia, Dr. Linda McGee, you, Bev Kearney, Coach Bev Kearney, another person. She's um amazing spirit, amazing friend, amazing coach. So those are some of the few. Well, Kelly, we want to thank you for sharing. Uh, I know it's a personal journey for you <laughs> that you're still on. And we here at Waymaker encourage you uh, and your family. And we look forward to how we can strategically partner with you to sort of help create change, not just with Sunrise, but with the communities that need Sunrise. Mm -hmm. So we want to thank you for all that you're doing. You know, I love your husband. I love Kyle. I love Chris. So thank you so much for sharing a personal journey and for creating the Sunrise Project. Clearly, we need it. Clearly, we need to support projects like this and people like you. So thank you for being a part of the Waymaker Fireside Chat today. Thank you, Lewis. I appreciate being here. Love you and thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Kelly Richardson Lawson. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 